Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. All right, well, hey, last week we started our series, The Bible is filling the blank, right? And last week we talked about the Bible is unrivaled. And let me tell you why. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And really it's not, it's not even close. With over 5 billion copies sold, it is, it is sold five times more than any other book printed. It is, it is also the most widely translated book being translated into 2,883 languages. The Bible has had, has had more song lyrics written about it, more books written about it, and shockingly is also the most stolen book ever, which, which, which I think is weird, but at, the same, same, but, but at the same time, no other book has been more loved, hated, outlawed, abused, misinterpreted, misconstrued, referred to, honored, or dishonored. Right? And I challenged you last week, the Bible, or, 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 or we challenged you last week to start, renew, or strengthen your relationship with the Bible. And I gave you three reasons why last week. First off, because the Bible tells you who God is and what God's like. The Bible, it is an, an, an invitation for you. To, it's God saying, hey, look. I am an open book. You can come and find out about me. Secondly, though, the Bible is timeless and timely. We talked on how the Bible did not just happen. The Bible happens, right? But thirdly, we said that the Bible has what your soul needs and longs for, that the Bible tells you where you came from, what is right and wrong, why you're on this planet and where you are going. And the Bible calls dibs on all of those things. But don't get me wrong. Like I said, I completely understand that some people's relationship with the Bible is complicated. When you've got a book that is 66 books written by 44 different authors, some being statesmen and farmers and shepherds and peasants and musicians, poets and kings and even tax collectors over a period of 1,500 years, written from 13 different countries on three continents, from so many different cultural and socio-political environments in three different languages that include communication types such as genealogies, narrative history, chronicles, laws, poetry, proverbs, prophetic oracles, riddles, drama, biographical sketches, parables, letters, sermons, and, and also apocalyptic literature, I understand that you can either deduct the Bible is a miracle of God or the insanity of man. So think about it. How would you complete that statement the Bible is? And, and the thing is, right, I guarantee that, that, you know, that I would probably say at least 25% of people, uh, of people watching today, you would complete that statement with the Bible is confusing. <laughs> the Bible is confusing. And honestly, what I have seen, heard, and even 
lived in my own life is that the, the thing is, it doesn't matter what season of following Christ you're, you're in. Before, you've been following him for, tw- for, tw- for 20 years. You're a brand new Christian. It, do- it doesn't matter. The Bible is and will continue to be, at times, confusing. It just will. Because honestly, you bring into it your past, your, your past history, your, your own viewpoint, your cultural biases, and you bring it to, to the Bible, and it's got all different kinds of books, genres of writings, and it can be confusing for so many people. And what, and what I want to do today is to help you deconfuse the Bible. I want to help you deconfuse the Bible. Like I said, get your seatbelt on. We're going in hard. Hope you are prepared for it. I want to give you three ways to deconfuse the Bible. First off, context, 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 right? In real estate, there is a saying for how valuable a for for how value for how valuable and wanted a particular property is and what they'll say. Location, location, location. When trying to understand the Bible, it's context, context, context. When I was in, in Bible college, a professor would always share this statement with his class. He would say this, a text with no context is a pretext for a proof text. Basically saying, if you take a text of scripture and take it from its con- con- context, what you're doing is you're setting is you're setting yourself up to create what people call a proof text. And a proof text is when you take a text within scripture and you make it say what you want it to say instead of what the Bible is actually saying. Let me give you a couple quick examples within our current culture and probably scriptures you've, you've probably heard and probably scriptures that you even love, right? We'll do this one here. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. People love this verse. People put it on greeting cards. They, they, they put it on graduation cards. They put it, you know, sports players, they put it on their kind of like eyewear stuff that they put on. And, you know, I can do all things through Christ. And it's a great, you know, motivational, inspiring statement saying, you know, if we just say this verse enough times, God will give us the strength to do what we would not be, 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 be normally able to to do. But the key here and power with this verse is to actually check out the context. And, and with this verse here, let me share with you what the three previous verses say before Paul says, says that, that verse that I can do all things through Christ. This is what it says here. It says, I, I and, and I being Paul, rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, 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 in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ 
who gives me strength. What Paul is saying here, whenever you stop cherry, cherry picking this verse, what you actually see that Paul is saying here is like, look, look at my life. Paul is saying, I know what it is to have a whole lot. I've been balling and I know what, what it's like to have nothing, nada. He's like, ain't got no budget, right? He's got a baller and no budget, right? Paul is saying, I know what it is to have a whole lot, but also too, I know what it is to have plenty, nothing, whatever. I know what, what, I know both of those circumstances. And what Paul's saying here is, what God has showed me within both, both of those circumstances is that whatever God sends, sends my way, that he will give me the strength to handle it. What that verse is saying is you can handle it. Whatever you're facing right now, pain, you can handle it. Loss of relationships, you can handle it. Frustration, you can handle it. Our current pandemic, you can handle it. What this is saying is you can handle whatever God brings into your life. He will give you the strength. You see the power whenever you take in con context here. Also, uh, another cultural favorite, Jeremiah 29 11. We love this verse, man. We love this. I know the plans I have for you, declares our plans to prosper, give you hope and a future. But again, we got to dive into the context here, right? The context here is that God's chosen people are, are on the brink of destruction. The Israelites, they've disobeyed God and they've got a king disobeying God. And this king tried to prophesy and say, hey, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be fine in two Years, but he was actually a false prophet prophesying what he wanted to say instead of, of what God told him to say. And Jeremiah, the prophet, comes, God's true prophet, and says to him, hey, you're actually going to be in exile for 70 years. You're actually going to be taken out of your home country, and you are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. But then... Jeremiah the prophet comes on the scene and he says, look, after that 70 years, God, God wants to tell you something. I know the plans that I've got for you, plans to prosper you, to give you hope, to give you a future. See, we, we love quoting that without saying, yeah, but they had to go through 70 years of craziness before they got through the blessing part and the prosperous part, right? Saying this verse doesn't always mean that life will be absent of pain hurt, and regret. Do you, do you see how important and powerful context is, right? Because the thing is this, when you take the Bible out of context, it's like defining a whole movie by one scene or defining a whole speech by one quote. And don't we love to do that in this country? We, we love to, to just to cherry pick a quote, cherry pick a tweet, cherry pick and define something holistically by one part of it. The thing is this, right? You might get your point proved by, by cherry-picking scriptures and cherry-picking scenes and cherry-picking and cherry quotes, but the thing is, it's fake news. And the thing is this, there is so much fake news going on right now, and the truth is this, it is all up in the church. The church has been guilty of taking scripture. I mean, the church for years has been guilty of taking scripture in this book, and promoting fake news and using it to enslave, oppress, and even kill people in the name of Christ. Last year, I went to visit the, the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And here's the thing. If, if you 
have not gone there, you need to go. You need to go take a day, two, two days, whatever, whenever you can actually do that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I went there last year, and, and on the bottom floor, they always have a rotating exhibit that changes month by month. And, and within the particular month that I, that I was there, they had the exhibit for a Bible that was called the Slave Bible. And honestly, I'll just be candid with you. This is hard to even read, but I feel it's important for us to see the pain that wrong context of Scripture can cause. From the Bible Museum's website, it says this. The Slave Bible, as it would become known, is a missionary book. It was originally published in London in 1807 on behalf of the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves, an organization dedicated to improving the lives of enslaved Africans toiling in Britain's lucrative Caribbean colonies. They, they used the slave Bible to teach enslaved Africans how to read while at the same time introducing them to the Christian faith. Unlike other missionary Bibles, however, the slave Bible contained only select parts of the biblical text. Its publishers deliberately removed portions of the biblical text, such as the, the Exodus story, that could inspire hope for liberation. Instead, the publishers emphasized portions that justified and fortified the system of slavery that was so vital to the British Empire. I'll just be candid with you. I was walking through this exhibit about ready to be like Jesus in the temple. I was enraged. I was ready to smash stuff, punch out, punch out glass, glass showcases. It made me so angry that for financial gain, People would take, God, take God's word, his holy word, and use it as a tool to, to enslave people, to oppress people, and simply to reinforce what they themselves wanted the Bible to say instead of what Bible, instead of what God's word said. They wanted to reinforce the system that they wanted instead of forwarding the kingdom that Jesus came to earth to build. It was angering and disgusting and ridiculous, but not shockingly. This book was also used to promote and reinforce slavery within the, within the United States. Our country's guilty of that, of, of, of taking this book and saying, well, the Bible says, and using it as a tool to, re, to reinforce a system that they wanted instead of what God wanted. I mean, here's the thing. We can, we can look at this. I mean, we, we can just like, what were they thinking? Like, what was, what was our country thinking? What was the, like, what were we thinking? And, and I mean, they're like, la, 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 la. Like, we're just going to put our fingers in our ears and just say, I mean, it's like, what, what were they thinking? But, but the thing is this, let me tell you and warn you right now. Every generation of people has things that, because of their own personal agenda, they will look in Scripture and cherry-pick verses to support their cause and then do despicable things in the name of God. 
Think, uh, think about the Crusades. There are people that said, hey, let's get together and kill people in the name of Christ. Like, what, what, what Bible were they reading? What kind of weed were they smoking? Like, that they interpreted when Jesus said, love your enemies as like, hey, yeah, let's, let's go out and kill them. But la, 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 la. Our agenda, our agenda, our agenda. Let's take the Bible and make it say what we want it to say. But even think about the generation we're currently in right now. Or even in your life right now. What do you just put your fingers in your ears and just say, God doesn't care. I'm going to make it say what I wanted to say. What do you do? You know, honestly, one of the, the biggest things that concern me within our culture is how we take the Bible and try to justify, and this is definitely a United States thing that we have done, where we try to take the Bible and justify that God wants you rich and prosperous. And if you have Jesus, you have endless entitlement to, n- to never get sick, always be rich, and that ultimately, if you have Jesus, that entitles you to a life of an upper-class American citizen. And they'll take what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. That is a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus was saying. Whenever Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and I will, and, and I will give you all of these things, the context of that scripture was, was this, get, get ready, food and clothing. Basically saying, your basic needs, not your wants, will be met. But here's the thing. We love to take that and be like, oh, all, God, all these things will be added. That includes boats and nice vacations and all these things, right? But honestly, that's a gross misinterpretation. What I have decided to do, right, is say this. Does what I preach, proclaim, and interpret from this book, would I be able to preach it to Christians being persecuted in, I don't know, Iraq? If I went into a, a sort of like, you know, underground home church in a foreign country and told them, well, if you're following Jesus, you should be rich. And they're being persecuted for their faith? Doesn't work there. Does not work there. Y'all, here's the thing. We've got to be careful. Here's the thing. You need to acknowledge your built-in personal and culturally shaped biases and lay them down when you come to the Bible. You can't come to the Bible saying, here's how I am and want to be. Hey, Bible, conform to that. We don't have that right. We come to the Bible saying, I submit my personal preferences, my cultural conditioning, my ingrained desires, and I say, conform me, train me, rebuke me, correct me, teach me, expose me to be like Jesus. Do you know what the crazy thing is? Even Jesus submitted himself to scripture. Yes, Jesus, you know, the son of God guy? He submitted himself to scripture. Jesus is not telling you, asking you to do something that he himself has not done. Here's the thing, right? Luke chapter four, starting in verse number three. This is when, when Satan came to tempt Jesus. It says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread 
alone. And what he was quoting there was Deuteronomy 8.3. He used, he used God's word. Then it says, the devil led him up to a very high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said back, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. The, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. Then the devil quotes scripture. The devil takes, this is boggles my mind. The devil quotes the Bible. He said, hey, Psalm, he said, he said, hey, Psalm 91 says, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. The devil misinterprets scripture. That's one of the main tools he has is to take God's word and twist it to, to make it be what you, what you want it to be instead of what God actually intended it to be. But Jesus said this back to him. He said, do not put your Lord, your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Y'all, here's the thing. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Context, context, context. Do the hard work of finding the context of scripture. There, there is power and clarity in it. Okay, speaking of Jesus, second, second thing here. The Bible, the Bible is all about Jesus. Every film has got a central figure. Every story has got a, a central theme, a central person, a central plot. And when it comes to the Bible, it is Jesus. When I say it's all about Jesus, what you might have possibly heard me say is it's, it's a lot about Jesus. It's some about Jesus. No, it, it is, when I say it's all about Jesus, it is all about Jesus. What makes Christianity unique is Jesus. It's not that we just do good or that we believe in being spiritual. What makes Christianity different Unique and distinct from every other religion is Jesus Christ and his claim to be God, but not only claiming to be God, backing it up by rising from the dead, but not just rising from the dead, actually having his followers see him, witness him, touch him. But not only is Jesus the center of Christianity, he is the center of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books compiled into one book telling one story that ultimately culminates in one person, Jesus Christ. I've heard it said this, this way. The Old Testament prepares the way for and points to Christ, while the New Testament reveals, explains, and points back at all that Jesus did and accomplished. Scholars conclude that there are 500 references and prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ, including when he was going to be born, how he was going to be born, when he was going to be born, and what he would ultimately do when he was born and throughout his life and what he would Accomplished. The first prophecy about Jesus was in the third chapter of the Bible in Genesis 3. That the, that the eventual offspring of Eve would ultimately crush Satan's head. It prophesied that Jesus would be born to a virgin, come from a family line of David, flee as a refugee into Egypt, live a sinless life, perform miracles, ride a donkey into Jerusalem before his death, be betrayed by one of his friends, that he would be beaten, mocked, spit on, hated, rejected, and ultimately crucified between sinners, and that he would be put in a tomb provided for by a rich man, but ultimately he would rise from the dead. Y'all, the Bible is all 
pointing towards and centered on Jesus. And the thing is, even Jesus said this about himself. Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke is one of the four uh, accounts written, uh, is one of the four biographies written about Jesus. Luke, who was a doctor and a historian, was actually putting together a documented um, a, a documented account of Jesus's life. And what we actually find at the beginning of Luke chapter one, verse, verse, verses is one through four. And, and I'm telling you this to give you context. All right, uh, this is what it says here. Luke's talking here. He said, many have, many have, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the book of, of Luke was, was actually a documented historical account from eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life written by Written, 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 written by, the, by the historian Luke. And what we see in chapter number 24, the final chapter in the book, we actually see here Luke documenting the first encounter that Jesus had, excuse me, the second, the second encounter that Jesus had with somebody after he rose from the dead. And we're gonna actually read this together. Luke chapter 24, verses 13. And we're gonna read until... Until I'm done. All right, <laughs> here we go. N- now that n- um, now that same day, two two of two of them were going to to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They talked and they discussed these things with each other. And Jesus Himself came up and walked beside them, but they were kept from recognizing them. He asked them, what are you discussing together as, as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have, that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our, some of our own women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He, and he being Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah suffer these things and then enter his glory? Here's the key verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said, I'm we're, Jesus, we're going to do a Bible study right now. And I'm going to tell you about where, about, about where I'm at in the scriptures. And he went through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and all of those different books that I'm not sure of. Here we go. Judges, Joshua, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Psalms, Proverbs, 
Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. He said, hey, let me show you where I am in all of these books. Why? Because it was centered on a person. And Jesus said, that person is me. If you want to deconfuse the Bible, read it with Jesus lenses on. Realizing the Old Testament story is pointing towards, towards him. The New Testament story is pointing back at him and put Jesus at the center of the Bible and it will clear up a lot of your confusion. Thirdly though, thirdly though, let me finish up. The final thing is this. You deconfuse the Bible by being comfortable with being confused. I want to say that one more time because some of y'all are really confused by that statement. You deconfuse the Bible by being comfortable with being confused. Here's the thing. On this side of heaven, you won't understand everything about this book. The truth is there are parts of this book you will have to accept by faith. And you know what? That, that's fine. This book will be confusing and hard to understand. But here's the thing. Our temptation will then be to focus on what is not clear at the expense of what is clear. This is, where, this is where I've seen people that get in deep trouble because the Bible is clear. It's about Jesus, that God created us. We've sinned. Jesus came, lived a perfect sinless life that, that we couldn't live, died on the cross in our place and for our sins and rose again and declared and established his church and said that he would return again. That stuff is clear. But people can easily get focused on secondary things and points and be divided and be divided over them and be confused and confuse others. Here's the thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. But, but, but also being okay that with that on this side of heaven, there will just be some things that will just confuse us. Because the truth is, we're not God. If we did know everything, we would not be God. But we are not God. And we actually have to be okay with the fact that we're not God. I want right where you're at right now just to say this after me. I am. Say it. Thank you. I am not God. Yes, you are not God. We are not God. And because of that, there's going to be some things that aren't just going to be clear. Look, I've got three sons, four, six, nine. Do you know how many times I tell them things that they don't understand yet? Like I'm trying to tell my nine-year-old son, one day you're going to grow up and have bills. And you're going to be able to just eat from dad's fridge. And I'm not going to be able to pay for everything. And you're going to actually have to like work and get a job and not just sit there and play video games all day, right? Like, like I'm trying to prepare him for the future and he's having a hard time understanding that and realize because I see from a different perspective when I tell them to do something they don't always get it but they do it because they have faith and they're probably scared in who I am also as their father and that is the posture we need to take that although not everything in this book will be 100% clear to us we obey what is clear and for the other stuff we have faith in God's character and who God is that in his timing in his plan he will, that, here's the thing, he will make known to us what needs to be known at the right time. Let me tell you this story in closing. Robbie Zacharias, he tells this story about dealing with the unknown that is, the, the, and, and this story is based on, on Mideastern folklore. He says this, a man's horse ran away. His, his neighbor came to him and said, bad luck that you're, that your horse has run away. The guy said, what do I know of these things? A week later, the horse came back with, with 
20 other wild horses in his wake. His neighbor said, good luck. Now you have so many more horses. The guy said, um, what do I know about these things? Trying to tame one of these brand new horses, the man's son was kicked and his leg was broken. The neighbor said, bad luck, your, son, your son's leg was broken. The man said, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days later, a bunch of thugs came by in search of able-bodied young men for their gang. They were about to kidnap the man's son, but when they found out his leg was broken, they left him behind and moved on to the next house. The neighbor said, what good luck that your son's leg is broken. This story reminds us, we do not know what lies ahead. And instead of denying God's goodness or denying his plan or being frustrated, angry, that, that you know, or being frustrated and angry about something in scripture or that life might not be clear, we would be wise to wait until we stand before him face to face. Then if if you still care, if we still care about such things, we can ask him to explain himself and we will no doubt learn that in every case he had perfect reasons for doing or failing to do what we expected him to do. There are just some things on this side you're not going to understand. Personally, I have accepted that there is so much in life that I am unsure of. Flat out. Like there's just, and I'm, you know, honestly, I feel like at times, the more I know God, the more confused I get. And it can just be frustrating, but at the same, same time, what gives me peace is the fact of it's okay to be, to be at times unsure. It's, it's at times not to always have everything figured, figured out. But, but what I've decided is, is this, that I am least unsure about the story that this book tells, the hope that this book gives and the clarity that this book infuses into my life about, about, about who God is, who I am, and why the world is the way it is. To deconfuse the Bible, context, context, context. Make it all about Jesus. And thirdly, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Thank you again for joining us on the LifeHouse Newport News Podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much and God bless.